Ask Canada Immigration Lawyer Evelyn Aka. Good day. My name is Evelyn Aka. I'm the founder and managing lawyer of Aka Business Immigration Law. We are based in Calgary, Alberta, and we have two offices in Toronto and Vancouver, Canada as well. I focus primarily on cross-border NAFTA immigration law for professionals as well as families and individuals looking to move to Canada or move to the United States. I would like to welcome you to my podcast. It's called Ask Canada Immigration Lawyer Evelyn Aka. Good day. I have the pleasure and joy of introducing my dear friend and colleague, Dustin O'Quinn, who is chair of the immigration practice at Lane Powell in Seattle, Washington. Welcome. Hi, Evelyn. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. I'm really excited. Um, people won't know this yet, but you and I work together sometimes on files and we refer work to each other cross-border. And you and your team have been such a wonderful resource for us of, immig- of immigration advice for the areas we don't do. And also hopefully sharing some information with your team as well about Canadian immigration law. Indeed, so, Evelyn, we're we're uh, very happy to have you as a resource because we don't want to get in any trouble by providing advice on the very complicated Canadian immigration laws. Uh, but it's great that the Canadian and U.S. government sometimes work together, so it provides that opportunity for us to be able to collaborate. I think it's fabulous. I want to know about how you, Dustin O'Quinn, started in immigration law. How did you find your way to corporate immigration? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would say 15 years ago, not that many people even knew what corporate immigration was, Mm -hmm. but I was uh, practicing in Texas, which is where I'm from. And I happen to be fluent in Spanish. Spanish was one of my majors in college, Mm -hmm. which led me to doing a lot of uh, volunteer work in college and law school. And so I wound up volunteering on a lot of immigration cases, but there were the asylum cases and temporary protected status. But after law school, I wound up just going into the immigration practice because I was drawn to that from all of my uh, volunteer work. However, uh, I was assigned to the corporate immigration case at my very first law firm. And as you know, corporate immigration is very different Mm -hmm. than um, asylum and temporary protected status. But I still got to use my Spanish and I still do once in a blue moon. But I really enjoy helping uh, companies and their employees navigate the immigration system in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great that's a great kind of arc as to how you got into it, because for me, it's being able to sleep at night. You know, some of the asylum stuff is woof. It's very taxing emotionally and mentally. And I think being able to focus on the, at least the corporate or the executive or the highly skilled worker categories, you know, you know that we do our best and most of the time we're successful, but that rare occasion, if you're not and you have to redo it, you're not thinking about life and death. You know what I'm saying? That's right. I do think, you know, I, I, I do think the stakes are high in what we do. And we can help companies save lots of money and those employees who are in the United States. And we may have dozens of cases and they've got one. It's their Mm -hmm. own. And it's so important. But you're absolutely right, Evelyn. I um, it's just a little bit different when someone is seeking refuge in the United States from a life or death situation. Mm -hmm. And I still touch those cases once in a while when I volunteer, uh, but only when I volunteer. (laughs) <laughs> and um, our client base at Lane Powell, uh, we're so happy to work with 
with companies. And it is just a, it's a different practice. It is, it is. So I remember when you joined Lane Powell, how many years ago has it been now you've been there? Because you've moved Five. through the ranks so quickly, it seems, right? So now you're a shareholder, you're chair of the immigration department, lots That's of other right. things you do for the firm. A lot has happened in five years, Evelyn. I think that that is interesting. You know, I joined in in 2016, and then the United States got a new president in January of 2017. Mm -hmm. And we had just dozens of immigration changes per year Mm -hmm. that really required a lot of strategy and research and really pivoting and figuring out how to practice immigration and companies were figuring out how to keep their employees sponsored and how to let people travel internationally. So yeah. the last five years seems like 15 years, but in a good way. <laughs> how did you deal with, um, like, obviously there are a lot of H1B clients that we don't do them at Ecolab, So we always refer them out. Um, how did you deal with that in the whole Silicon Valley and all these people, you know, from India and China who, wanted to get a green card and because of the politics at the time it just seemed like never going to happen what what kind of solutions could you offer them that's right evelyn i think the best solution is communication uh the the immigration laws right now are are crazier than they normally are and they're normally (laughs) pretty crazy and so when i'm dealing with companies whether they're large or small and you've got busy human resources contacts or especially the employees themselves are really trying to navigate the system and figure out exactly what's going on through those news alerts and blog posts that they read. So I think the the most successful thing we can do is pause for just a moment and think about how we communicate to our clients, right? The messaging may be things are a bit crazy right now, but your wait time is only delayed six months to a year. Uh, So I know that six months wasn't great before, Mm -hmm. and now it's 12 months, and that's really problematic. But maybe let's hop on a 15-minute call and discuss what all your options are, just so that you are comfortable that we're doing things the right way and that we didn't miss any other options. That's right. From a a corporate client standpoint, Evelyn, it's the same thing, but on a larger scale, right? If If you're a really busy human resources contact and you've got to deal with say 50 employees who have visas and now the the world has changed on that front and you've got those 50 employees beating down your door we have to stop and figure out what exactly is going on in immigration how that affects your industry and your company Mm -hmm. and then we liaise with you to figure out how to have those conversations with your employees so that they feel as safe as possible, given the climate. Yeah, I can just imagine. I mean, COVID has affected us here, obviously, in Canada and our borders. And and, uh, we're considered closed, but we're not. You just, you have to be strategic and plan and prepare for quarantine unless you can get an exemption. How has the COVID-19 crisis affected your firm or the way you practice immigration law? It's it's almost exactly the same, Evelyn. You know, as I mentioned before, the the U.S. and, and Canada, and to a lesser extent, of Mexico. A lot of the immigration laws operate similarly. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the U.S. Canada Mexico Agreement, and formerly NAFTA, mm-hmm. and uh, we've seen the exact same things happening with COVID. Uh, understandably. Uh, governments were like, let's close down our borders, at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. But as you said, they're not completely closed. Uh, We have found 
that when there is a need for a person or for a company to get people to come into the United States, that we've been able to, to meet that need. You've been able to demonstrate that need with okay. your help, thank you, <laughs> with those national interest exceptions or those mm-hmm. special exceptions about the type of work. Uh, but it is a lot of figuring out what that need is, mm-hmm. uh, getting the, the documentation, when companies are already going through so much. You know, yeah. I just thought of you because I had a conversation with a Canadian immigration border agent just because we wanted to make sure we had all the right documentation. And that agent said, I want to be direct with you. The the guidance that we're getting changes every single day. Yes. So be flexible and be patient. But if you can demonstrate your need to come into Canada or to go to the U.S., then we should be able to work with you, but you've got to check the guidelines. It's true. I mean, we are finding it's easier to go to the States. We still have a number of clients doing the port of entry TNs and the NAFTA Ls at the port of entry without any issues. I mean, there's no like, what are you going to do about quarantining? What's your plan for this? So it obviously feels differently because we're still behind on some of our, you know, COVID vaccinations, whereas it seems like the U.S. is moving further, faster. Um, it's It seems easier now. And so more and more people, just from your interest level, you should know, we're getting more and more Canadians saying, we're done. We want to move our company to the US. We just are tired of all the taxes. Or we're just, we want to live in Texas for whatever your political or affiliation or family relationship. So it's been interesting that we're getting those calls now where they're just kind of like up with the hands, we're moving to the States. So it's um, it's going to be an interesting year or two, I think, to see how things unfold. Um, right. I'm obviously interested to see what's going to happen with the president, um, with President Biden in terms of USMCA L1s at the port of entry, which, you know, that affected us from the ability to renew. So then we have to work with our colleagues in the States, um, such as yourself, to help us because... We can't do very much no any longer at the port of entry. Um, have you heard anything about that? I feel like you might have the inside source. I need to know. <laughs> yeah, Evelyn, there is a lot that there are a lot of um, recommended rules yeah. in the in the drafting stage of the law process right now, and it seems like there is a lot that's on hold. Oh. You know, uh, a lot of the lawmaking and rulemaking that happened in the latter half of 2020 was put on hold. Yeah. And I'm optimistically happy about that, or I'm cautiously optimistic about that, because I do believe that um, President Biden here in the United States and his administration are taking a realistic and comprehensive approach okay. at immigration. But what that means, Evelyn, is that so many specific decisions that we want right now right on now. those smaller scales, <laughs> you know, that would be from our practice, that would be an easy fix, right? It was like yeah. you were doing it great before. Just do it again. Just do it again. Just kind of swing that pendulum back the other way. Um, yeah. But those things are happening on a smaller scale. But okay, you know, I'm I'm very interested to see what when you you mentioned so many Canadians moving to the U.S. Yeah, we are seeing that, and that also seems like a pendulum swing from what we've seen the last five or six years with so many United States people moving to Canada. Right, yeah. we just saw a huge uptick, particularly here in the Pacific Northwest. We saw so many companies 
from Seattle and Oregon and Idaho moved to Canada because mm. from an immigration perspective, it was just too hard to get the right amount of employees here in the US yeah. or to get them here quickly enough. So we saw them open offices in Canada yep. and they were like, hey, this is great. We're going to do business here for a while. And now, as you mentioned, uh, we're starting to see a little bit of the opposite. Really? That's so interesting because, you know, I remember a few years ago, it was with some of the changes with uh, former President Trump and and it was becoming harder for H-1Bs and green cards. And, you know, as we know, some some really highly skilled people to to stay and extend their status or get green card status. And so there was a big offshoring, nearshoring kind of initiatives to bring um, branches and subsidiaries to Canada. And that's still happening, but I don't feel that same fervor of, oh, we got to go because some of them are feeling like we'll just hedge our bets because maybe things will start moving faster now in the green card process. Or some of them who came are now going back again because they have a sense that they will get their green card status. So it's been an interesting few years. Yeah. That's right. It's really complicated when you, when you think about it, people are being very strategic Mm. with their life plans, which is of course admirable, but it does make the mobility, especially across our border, pretty difficult to predict. Yeah, I agree. So tell me about e-visas. You do them there at, at Lane Powell and those are the investor visas, the equivalent Are you seeing, I mean, what I'm seeing when we work with our colleagues in the U.S. who do this is dealing with um, the the delays at the U.S. Embassy. Like, what are you saying? Because I had somebody today, for instance, would have been a great referral. And I said, you need to know if you want to move in June this year, that's not happening (laughs) under an E. And we have to connect you with our E person. And then maybe you do an L until you can get where you need to be. Because I think I've heard the embassy is not even booking appointments, at least Toronto, this year, apparently. That's absolutely right, Evelyn. So, you know, just as a little bit of background, the the E2 investor visa is a non-immigrant visa. So it's it's not like a green card. There is an investor green card. And there we're talking about investing a million dollars or more into the United States. So let's put a pin in that and not talk about that (laughs) right now. Um, But the E2 is an interesting one because it has historically been a great way for business people to Mm -hmm. come to the United States and start or continue their business operations here. Uh, But absolutely right. It's it's difficult because first, usually uh, the E2 visa application must be done at the embassy. That means that that application is being filed with Mm -hmm. and being reviewed by the Department of State. And that's rare because most of our immigration status petitions are at least first, if not completely, filed with and reviewed by Department of Homeland Security. So we usually send almost all of our applications, except for the E, to USCIS. That's That's the immigration service. That's right. And the immigration service will say, look, we rolled up our sleeves and we did the work and we decided you're eligible for this visa. Now you can go to the embassy and get a visa. And the embassy is like, well, Homeland Security, USCIS said you're good, so you can come on in. It's definitely not that simple, but that's (laughs) kind of what it is. But for that E, you're filing the entire application with the Department of State. So that means they are looking for two things. They're looking for your eligibility to enter the country, which they always look at, Mm -hmm. but they're actually looking at your eligibility for that particular status, which is usually done by USCIS. And beyond that, the Department of State, you know, they're, they're pretty tough, but the E2 is also a very lengthy application. Yes. 
there's a lot to prove. There's a lot to show and nothing in immigration is black and white. Mm -hmm. So you're right. We're talking about sending a lot of documents to a very busy department of state. And what you're seeing right now, that long delay, Evelyn, is in part because of all of the embassy closures that we saw in early and mid 2020 because of COVID. So so those embassies are, are kind of backlogged with all of the people who were intending to come to the U.S., between March of last year and now, mm. and it's not just E's, it's the H1s and some of the L's and the, and other visa types mm. where people got their status approved from Homeland Security first, and then they had to go get their visa from the embassy. So the embassy has to deal with that, and then they have mm. to stop that rotation and deal with these pretty hefty, lengthy E2 applications. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. Right, we're seeing, we're seeing them either December of 2021 or into 2022. Oh, good news. I'll I'll finish with this. The good news is they are starting to pick up, but it is different from embassy to embassy and consulate to consulate. Remember there are embassies all over the world that are Mm -hmm. doing E2s and there are quite a couple in Canada, but they're Mm -hmm. all sort of reporting up to the national department of state. So we are knock on wood hoping that in a couple of months, We'll start to see those visa appointments get in a little earlier. I hope so. We even had on our end, um, one of our clients wanted a visitor visa to to visit the U.S. And uh, Mexican citizens here working legally, everything is good, and wanting to go to the States for a family wedding. So they needed, you know, the their, their U.S. visa. And they just keep getting pushed back. The dates would, you know, so now the wedding has been pushed back because it's like, they have no idea when they're actually going to be able to get in. And it's been frustrating because as a lawyer, you're like, we know the process to fill in the forms to help you, but we can't help you when it comes to the booking and confirming the appointments and that they change them because it's not an emergency or it's not urgent. There's nothing we can do, right? Have you seen that too? We have seen, we've seen that exactly, Evelyn. We've seen appointments get scheduled and then moved by the embassy itself, which is something that was really rare before COVID, right? And this is after the embassy saying, no, we don't have any appointments. No, we have no appointments. Okay, maybe if you can prove this is an emergency, we'll get you an appointment. Mm -hmm. Okay, we accept your documentation. We think this is urgent, so we'll schedule the appointment. And then two days before, you know, we're pushing this appointment back by three weeks. My God. You know, and you're right as our, we're the attorneys and counselors at law for our clients. And we want to be able to provide a a little bit of um, substance and a little security for them regarding what this process is going to look like. But there's so much up in the air right now. Exactly. You know it. Tell me about H-1Bs this year. So how is that looking? Is it, I mean, I know the, the lottery and everything has been finished, are you finding still the same crazy volume of people are looking for H's or do you think things changed in the last year or two? Well, it's really interesting that um, we haven't seen the volume go um, up as much as we thought we did for, Mm -hmm. for H1B applications, but we also haven't seen it gone down, which is really interesting given the effects of COVID worldwide. Yeah. So for, you know, as background, the H1B is a fantastic visa option for (laughs) if you can get it great work if you can get it employers who want to have a professional level employee or someone with at least a bachelor's degree or its equivalent Mm -hmm. come to the u.s to work can file for an h1b now if someone already has an h1b for you or any other company in the u.s 
That's not what we're talking about. That's actually pretty easy to transfer or to extend, which is nice. But if someone's never had an H-1B, usually we're talking about someone in the U.S. on a student visa who's who's graduated and now they want to work with this company uh, for a few years as an employee. There's only 85,000 spots for new H-1Bs every year. But we're seeing, Evelyn, uh, if I can think back for the last 10 years or so, almost every year, there's between 200 and even 300,000 applications. So you're looking at somewhere between 200 and 300,000 applications for 85,000 spots. Mm. So as you mentioned, the government executes a lottery. They they literally run a lottery, uh, not based on how great the application is or how great the employee is, but it's a random lottery. They take all 250 or so thousand of those applications and then they assign a number to them and then they have an electronic system and they pick 85,000 of those applications. Oh my goodness. To review and hopefully approve. <laughs> and so Evelyn, you mentioned in COVID, we thought that we would see the applications go down. Actually last year, right before COVID, the government changed the process. They made it a good deal easier and cheaper for employers to enter an employee into the lottery. Good. So we thought we were going to see the numbers go up. Yeah. We thought, well, you know, if you don't have to pay a lawyer and, and send in $2,500 in fees, you just pay the government a $10 fee to enter that employee into the lottery. It and went down that much? It oh. went down that much. The whole process changed. Oh. Right. And so now I have a, if I'm an employer, I think this is fantastic. I'm going to enter the person in the lottery, which is a lot less work, pay a $10 fee. Then if they're selected... Then we have to submit the full application. Yes, of course. Yeah. In prior years, you had to send a full application with the fees to even be considered for the lottery. That's so amazing. that process is great. And we thought we were going to see so many more people apply. Mm. And we didn't. So the H-1B process is held pretty steady as far as the, the number of applicants. What's sad is it shows demand, right? The yeah, industry yeah. demands between two and 300,000 applications per year. And though the United States Congress has the power to change that number based on demand, they've been holding strong at 85,000 for the last 10 years or so. I don't understand that. So, I mean, for instance, Dustin, if somebody, if you get in, I mean, that's the thing is you don't know if you're going to get in. So if you get in and you get selected, then you do the rest. And now, given COVID, are their employees actually able to come here? Let's say they're not students. Are they able to get here? Or are they still stuck in the visa process, let's That's say, in a great India? Question. That's a great question, Evelyn, because last year, one of the many executive orders that our former president, Trump, mm-hmm. uh, signed was actually halting people who were outside of the U.S. and who didn't already have an H-1B visa right. from coming into the U.S. So there were people, perhaps, who were affected. If you if you were outside the United States and your company entered you into the lottery and you were selected and then you um, were ready to come here, you know, in mm-hmm. October when that process was, when, when the approval was there, uh, you couldn't because that, that visa ban was still available. Mm. Evelyn, that was not, that didn't affect as many people as we thought. Most okay. H-1B employees are actually already here working for their H-1B sponsor employer. As I mentioned, usually you graduate from a a U.S. university with a student visa. That, in almost every case, gives you at least one year of work authorization, a blanket work authorization. Mm -hmm. That one year of work authorization allows you to stay in the U.S. and work 
for a company, and then that company will sponsor you for an H-1B for that continued employment. So that's how most of the applications go. That's great. And so we didn't find a lot of people were stuck outside the United States. So but that what was happens good. for the student who moves to OPT, I guess that's what it's called, that's for that one year of work authorization, and they don't get the H-1B that first year? What happens? Evelyn, that's the million-dollar question, right? So if you graduate and then you get the OPT, as Evelyn mentioned, which is that mm-hmm. one year of work authorization, and it's great, okay. And then your company says, yes, we'll do an H-1B for you. We want you to stay forever. And you say, great, so do I. And then the company enters you into a lottery, but you're not one of those 85,000 mm-hmm. chosen. Then that one year of work authorization expiration date, uh, which is usually about a year after you graduate. So we're looking yeah. at, at June. Uh, and you will know by then that you didn't make it into the lottery. So what happens? Your options are few. Yeah. It's either uh, leave the United States, yep. stop working for that country, go back to your home, stop working for that company and go back to your home country, or go back to school. If you really oh. want to be in the United States, if your goal is just to be in the United States yeah. and have a long-term work authorization, go back to school for another level. If you graduated with a bachelor's, go get a master's. Because yeah. at the end of that master's program, you can get another OPT. If you graduated with a master's, maybe enroll in a PhD program. Oh. Because at the end of that, you can get another OPT. These are big decisions we're talking about. Of course, about. of course. <laughs> Intensive, right? Enrolling in school. Spending so all that money. For all that money. All that time. All that studying. I know. That's incredible. But Evelyn. That, um, that gives you a couple of options. While yeah. you're in school, that company can still apply for an H-1B for you again the next year. Yeah. Right? If you get the H-1B the next year based on your bachelor's, you could drop out of your master's program and start working with that company. Mm-hmm. Um, another option is we talked about the E-2 earlier. Yes. If you're, when I graduated college, I didn't have $100,000 to invest in a business. But if you're from a country that has an E-2 treaty with the U.S., like Canada does, mm-hmm. uh, then you could invest in a company and get here on an E-2. But other than leaving the United States, investing uh-huh. in a company, going to a, another university, and, and maybe a couple of other options yeah. that we recommend you, you talk about with the U.S. immigration wow. lawyer. There aren't many options if you don't make it in the lottery. What we saw in the last few years was when people who didn't get into the lottery, they would set up a branch in Canada and say, go there and keep working for us. We would transfer them, for instance, into Canada with the sub or a branch just to give them that time. And that's what I'm saying. We had all these people here. And then as soon as they won the next lottery, some of them were back again, you know, heading back to the U.S., knowing that they had H-1B locked up or they were getting closer to green card, whatever the state of things. But um, it's a hard. I mean, like the life of an immigrant, we think about it. We're all immigrants on some level, however we got here. But it's the idea that life can be so transitional. And you, I think you and I both have that sense of empathy for our clients because no matter how secure we are and, you know, successful, whatever that means, we, we seem to put ourselves in our clients, you know, shoes, because if, whether you're the president of a company, you have family coming with you, you need to get them all comfortable and settled and everybody needs to feel secure. And if the immigration part isn't secure, then nothing is going to feel certain. You know what I mean? So I think we both bring that value of empathy and and real sympathy and support. We're here for you because it's not just a work permit. 
it's it's the no. life of the person. It's it's your life. It's your livelihood. You know, Evelyn, I, I agree 100% with what you said. And I, I do feel for my clients. Something else that's come up in the United States in the last few years that I just, it almost breaks my heart. When we deal with corporate immigration, there are certain processes where we have all these dates and deadlines, right? You can't file a renewal before this date. Oh. But the government is taking longer. The process. They're taking longer than your current expiration. So people are having to go off of payroll. People are having to stop working for their for their company. Sometimes you can stay in the U.S. and stop working. Sometimes, like you said, we need to send you to Canada for a few months and have you stop working. But that is so disruptive to your life. Yes. More importantly, that's disruptive to your income. I mean, can you imagine even mm-hmm. just... Two months of not of, of one spouse or the other or both in some cases, mm-hmm. not being able to to work with the job that they have and make that money. It's just it's heartbreaking. I'm glad there was a little bit less of that. I'm glad too. Tell me, Dustin, about what you do at Lane Powell in terms of audits and compliance, because you know this is a big part of immigration too. The other side of not just getting here, but then making sure that everybody's in compliance with all that they said they were going to do when they brought the foreign worker in. How do you provide that support and service? What do you do? Sure, that's good, Evelyn. That's something that our clients don't think about that often, but we're doing a lot of work on the back end to make sure that our clients are compliant. And sometimes they don't even know. There's so much paperwork involved with the U.S. immigration process, and there's so many dates. And when when we're talking to our corporate clients and even the employees, we're all focused on that one date, right? We think the end goal is the start date. When can they start? And let's work our way backwards and figure out everything we have to do for them to be able to start working. But there are document retention regulations and there are guidelines about when and where and how to retain documents and to send information to the government. So we have a pretty sophisticated um, electronic filing process and it helps us keep track of the dates, but then also the information that we have to either um, stay on top of ourselves or that we have to share with the client. And so a couple of times a year, we are running reports and we're tracking those dates and we're, we're advising our clients on the form I-9 yes. and on the Department of Labor wage and hour requirements and on other document retention requirements. And so thank goodness for technology and <laughs> reports systems that we can uh, check in with our clients a few times a year and uh, let them know what they need to do. That's great. So speaking about technology, how does Lane Powell implement technology? I mean, you know, I like you, I've come from a big, big firm and then I started my own firm, but we, no matter what, technology is important. But I think sometimes um, when you have a practice that may not be a, the main practice at a big firm, sometimes you're not sure if they understand even what you do, except you, except you save them, you save their clients, you make them look good, right? That's when they know what immigration does. But um, do you utilize a lot of technology and innovation in your practice? How has it changed in the last, let's say, 10 years? We do, Evelyn. That's a great question. And you're absolutely right. I love that Lane Powell is what we call a full service law firm. So we do almost anything that you could think of uh, for companies in any any way that a company needs a lawyer, we will be able to handle that for you. Um, And it's not that common that um, firms like mine have 
pretty big immigration practices. Mm -hmm. So we're fortunate that we do utilize immigration specific software in addition to the other firm software. So we've got uh, firm white software that tracks all kinds of dates for us, Mm -hmm. but then we have really sophisticated immigration software that um, we allow our clients to use as much or as little as they like. So for example, if you're a larger corporate client and you've got dozens of employees or even hundreds of employees Mm -hmm on visa status, then they typically really like uh, access to our software. So we can send you a report, we can give you any information you want to, but you as the HR contact will be able to log in. And with the click of two buttons, you can run your own report. Or you can log in and look up those dates yourself to see when John Doe's uh, visa expires Mm -hmm. or what country John Doe was born in. Um, But we also, Evelyn, we love our small clients as well. And we work with individuals yeah. and we have people who are like, please send me a, a Microsoft word document. I'm going to print it out and I'm going to write it with a pen and send it back to you. <laughs> that is wonderful as well. <laughs> we are flexible and we can work with you in any way that works for you. <laughs> we do the same. We do the same. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Some clients prefer paper and pen and we try to accommodate them. Um, but technology certainly helps speed up all of, you know, all of the systems so you can focus on the hard stuff and the real client focused work, you know, that's right. that's really important. Um, I have a couple more questions. What about dual citizenship in the States? I know from what I understand, they don't really recognize other citizenships, but have you seen any problems or changes with that? People can still come in and have two or three other citizenships. For sure. Actually, the way that I put a positive spin on the the U.S.'s (laughs) dual citizenship standpoint, you're right. So the U.S. doesn't recognize dual citizenship in the sense that they don't see any additional benefits from being a citizen of, for example, both Canada and the U.S. But they do recognize that you're a citizen of Canada and also that you're a citizen of of the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. So they they do recognize that. and, And that's fantastic. And what that means is if you want to be a citizen of Canada or of, of Canada and three other places, mm-hmm. the U.S. is not going to make you relinquish your U.S. citizenship. Yeah. It just means that all they really care about is that you're a U.S. citizen. So from a U.S. citizen standpoint, these are your um, duties. Yeah. These are your requirements. And also here are your privileges. Like, yes, like for sure. We haven't seen any big changes with that, but we work with so many dual citizens, Evelyn. I, I would love to bring up one little anecdote. <laughs> and tell you something. There are lots of people in the United States who are lawful permanent residents. That means they're allowed to reside here permanently, but they're not quite a citizen. One of the only differences is that lawful permanent residents can't vote in the U.S. And so many people ask, why do they choose to stay permanent residents and not citizens uh, and not become a citizen of the U.S.? Mm. And here's the distinction with that, that dual citizenship. Uh, if you are a citizen of Canada, for the, uh, for example, and a lawful permanent resident in the United States, and you're living in the U.S. forever, mm-hmm. let's say you get into some trouble with maybe the FBI or the IRS, uh, some pretty big trouble. Canada can swoop in and, mm-hmm. and say, you know, we have certain protections because this is a citizen of Canada. But if you're a dual citizen, if you're a citizen of Canada and the United States, Canada is going to say, hey, guy, 
we are glad that you're a citizen, but you're also a citizen of the U.S. That's right. So we're going to let the U.S. do what they want to do to you. We're not going to swoop in and protect you. No, Evelyn, we don't have that many people, thank goodness, thank who goodness. are in major trouble with the IRS or the FBI. Yeah. But it's a, that's that's kind of the little distinction that we see. There. That's very interesting. See, you know that I have a son that's dual. I got to think about that now. <laughs> when he's older, he's only 10. But I think, you know, there's a point in time, I think, too. There's taxes and other things for them to think about. But um, one of the last questions I want to ask you, Dustin, is about requests for evidence. Are you seeing, how is that affecting your practice? Are you seeing more RFEs from the USCIS, which then slows down everything? Or are things getting better? Like, I just I have no sense of that. Evelyn, oh, you just, you said a mouthful. Our, <laughs> our practice, I would say U.S. immigration lawyers uh, as a whole, in the entire United States and in other countries who serve the United States for immigration law, our practice changed immensely in 2017. Yes. The percentage of requests for evidence shot up more than double in almost every single case type. Mm. And this affected the cost and the timeline of getting people employed in the United States and their start date and extensions. It was it was a mess for lack of a better term. It was mm-hmm. a, a hodgepodge of red tape. Most of those requests for evidence, you know, at least from, from our practice, we submit really strong applications. Yeah. And so it was all the more frustrating to get this request when it's like, sure, we can we can make another legal argument. Uh, we can even maybe present some more evidence, but you know that there is a standard of proof and there's a standard of evidence and we've more than surpassed that standard. For sure. So to answer your question, we are so pleased to report that just in the last couple of months, we do see requests for evidence going down. Oh, good. Um, and I just, I, I think <laughs> Department of Homeland Security so much for giving deference to previous uh, petitions. So for yeah. example, you were on an H-1B before, and we approved that application before, we're at least going to consider the fact that we approved it before when, when doing your extension. Good. But for the last few years, there was actually guidance in place that said, we are not going to look at your previous application. In mm. fact, we are not going to even consider. We don't care that you had it approved before. We're looking at everything from scratch. And we're going to give you a new request for evidence. Wow. That's a practice that we're seeing going down, but it's still not as far down as it was before 2017. So we are talking to our clients and we're giving them hope that we see that light at the end of the tunnel, but we still have to be patient and flexible with start dates and timelines and getting people here into the U.S. My goodness. Well, as before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, how big is your group um, at Lane Powell that you are heading up in the immigration department? Sure. We've got five immigration attorneys now. We're in the we're in the process of growing. So I think our website is going to look different in the near future. Um, We have three immigration paralegals and again are growing and we have a couple of legal assistants and we use everyone uh, from a we really take a team approach because as as you know, the, the law is so complicated right now. We're all kind of novices because we're all just dealing with what, what the government is uh, throwing at us. But we're so pleased to be able to take that opportunity to look at the new guidance and look at the new laws and then also rely on our wealth of experience 
to come up with the best strategy for our clients. And we know that thin heads are better than one. (laughs) Yes, I always say, bring all the brains together in one room, even if it's virtual and try to find the answer. So that is fabulous. So if people want to reach out to you or have immigration questions or corporations that want to discuss their needs uh, with you at Lane Powell, Dustin, how should they contact you? What's the best way? Sure, there's two amazing ways to contact me. It's uh, at email, which is oquinnd at lanepowell.com. That's O-Q-U-I-N-N-D at L-A-N-E-P-O-W-E-L-L.com. And I can also be reached directly on uh, by telephone at 206-223-7949. That's great. Thank you so much, Dustin, for joining me on Ask Canadian Immigration Lawyer Evelyn Aka podcast. Very long name. But the, the, the thing about the podcast is it lets me interview people that I really admire and respect and that I work with. And for me to be able to shine a light on all the great work you're doing with your team at Lane Powell. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> I love the podcast, Evelyn. And I'm so excited to be on it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. I hope the information was valuable to you. Please do let me know if you have any questions. You can reach us at akalaw.com, A-C-K-A-H-L-A-W.com, or you can contact us by phone at 403-452-9515. Have a great day. Thank you.